Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. When I get up to the space station on my third flight, yeah, I, after I'd been there like a day, I'm going, hey, where's the guitar up here? Um, you know, because there's one permanently up there. Um, and it's just so weird and different without gravity, with not pushing the fluid out of your head. It's hard to sing. It's hard to play. So, yeah, it, it took me a while to, to sort of relearn a skill that I already had on Earth. But it did hit a silver lining because my sinuses were always congested because there's no gravity to pull it down. It was a little easier to hit the high notes, I, I found, which for covering Bowie, you know, if you think about Space Oddity, um, it, it actually worked to my advantage a little bit to not have a deeper register. That's Canadian astronaut Chris Hadfield talking about a few moments of his life that have now been watched by tens of millions of us Earthbound humans. It was when, as commander of the International Space Station, he took a brief break from his responsibilities to sing the David Bowie song, Space Oddity. But as I discovered in my conversation with Chris, his skill at communicating the experience of being in space extends far beyond that delightful video. Chris, this is going to be great to talk with you because you're such an extraordinary communicator. I really am so knocked out by your ability to communicate with such clarity and humor and information that is is surprisingly detailed, and yet it doesn't feel like we're lost in the woods. Well, coming from you, Alan, that's a huge compliment. I I don't know a better better, uh, communicator than yourself. And I've been looking forward to to meeting you and talking with you for a long time. Uh, Obviously, I've been so impressed by the stuff you've done. So it's a real pleasure uh, just to talk to you at all. But um, to hear you say that, it, uh, it, it's a real delight for me. Thanks. Well, thank you. I'm, I, it's, I mean every word of it. You're so, you're so vivid when you describe the missions you've been on that you scare the daylights out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I know you don't mean to, but when you, when you just casually mention you have to be prepared if a meteorite punches a hole in your spaceship, and I go, what? Wait a minute. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a sudden death experience. Well, I've done a couple spacewalks, Alan, and when you're on the outside of the spaceship, it's covered in scars. 
Like we actually, really? we actually take uh, like duct tape out with us because if a little meteorite has hit one of the handrails, it's like a little bullet hole in the handrail, which leaves a little sharp edge. And so uh. when you're out on a spacewalk, if your glove snagged that little sharp edge, you could rip a hole in your finger and then you'd lose the air out of your suit. So we actually, if, if there's a little sharp edge like that on one of the handrails, we'll wrap it in duct tape just so it's smooth for the next person coming along. So, yeah. See how this rational explanation has made me even more scared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's... You have to worry about a little... So that sounds like there are thousands of little bits of pebbles or something, probably small enough as a grain of rice yeah. to do a little damage. Or even a grain of sand. The, the, uh, you probably know the Earth gets hit by about 40 tons a day of, of rock from space. Most of it just grains of sand size. So every ounce of that goes by the space station because it's, you know, 350 miles up so or 300 miles up. So, so yeah, it, it, space isn't completely empty. It, it's got little grit in it. And we're going five miles a second. And some of those pieces of grit are going 15 miles a second. So we hit each other with a lot of energy yeah, and they leave scars. Um, but the space station is armor on the outside. So, uh, so it's protected us so far. Touch wood. Hopefully it'll keep everybody safe for a while to come. So there hasn't yet been a hole caused by any debris in space. Uh, there are lots of holes. Uh, like if you look out at your solar panels where we generate our electricity, there are there are bullet holes through the solar panels because they're pretty thin and they, they're not armored. But the ship itself, the pressurized hull, as you say, no, we've we've never had a big enough piece hit us to punch a hole. But yeah, it's it's, it's it, there's lots of things could go wrong, and it's one of the emergencies that you prepare for on board a spaceship. So that brings up my other frightened reactions. <laughs> <laughs> Your description of going out on a, on a walk, spacewalk. Do you talk about getting outside the hatch? And did I have, did I hear you right? You let go for a second out in space and spin around so you're facing the spaceship? Well, walking in space is is a fantastic human experience. Like I, I've got to do some pretty interesting things. I, I lived at the bottom of the ocean for a while and- uh, Yeah, how long were you uh, at the bottom of the ocean? A few weeks. And, and I, um, you know, I was in the delivery room when my wife gave birth to each of our three children. That's, that's an amazing experience. But to be outside on a spacewalk with the earth silent and, and bulging and textured and colored, and, and, and then the, the eternity of the blackness, of the bottomlessness of it. And you're this little pipsqueak nothing out there in between the two of them. It, it's a mind-bogglingly uh, beautiful experience to be out there to see that. Um, and normally, in, sort of contrary to what you just said, you hold on tight. In fact, I think if you could have seen my hand through my spacewalking glove, my knuckles would have been white at first. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, that's the only thing that's connecting you to this ship, apart from a little clothesline to keep you from drifting off. But after a while, you get good at it, like anything else. And you start to move around kind of um, elegantly and, and ballet-like. It's, you know, it's like a new skater versus, you know, uh, someone who knows how to skate. And then I found after a while, I would just be holding on with a gentle pressure between my thumb and a couple of fingers. And then I would get myself perfectly still next to the ship and then let go. 
I do have a little clothesline on a very gentle reel that, I, that I'm attached to structure with just in case I did float away. And it's about 60 feet long, so it would reel you back in. And if that broke, I'm, I'm wearing a jet pack. So that if I was tumbling off into space, I could activate this jetpack and drive this little joystick and try and fly myself back That's and grab good back on I'm again. I'm so glad to hear that because I was going to suggest that you take a can of hairspray with you. <laughs> it would work. Um, but if you think about it, if, if you spray it up by your head, then it's going to push not through the middle of you, but up by your head. And it's really just going to make you pinwheel. You'd have to get it down to the middle of you, the middle of your mass to push yourself along. Otherwise, you'd just tumble. So so that's not a good way to do it. So we wear a jet pack, and then you just drive this little joystick, and you have to get over and grab onto the station before you run out of gas. But but hopefully you don't ever, it's like, you know, an emergency parachute if you're a pilot. Hopefully, it's nice to have, but hopefully you don't have to use that. What did you do during the emergency when you went blind during a spacewalk? Well, um, there was contamination inside my suit that got into my left eye so that my left eye was just screaming in pain. And whatever this stuff was, it made my eye tear up so much. And um, tears don't fall without gravity. So that stuff just stayed on my eye with a bigger and bigger tear and eventually it flowed across into my other eye so that now both of my eyes were, were screaming and blind. I wasn't completely blind, but it was just sort of like I could only see light and dark when I could force my eyelids open against the pain. So essentially, I was uh, outside of spaceship on my very first spacewalk, um, holding on with one hand, and both of my eyes were basically struck blind. That was a really um, interesting moment life. Uh, but it was a real time to take stock. I mean, in, what was in reality, the first, What was the first <laughs> thought that went through your head? Can you remember? Uh, well, when my left eye was struck blind, my first thought was, well, ouch, and shoot. And I tried to rub my eye. You know, my hand bounced off my helmet thinking, <laughs> boy, I'm glad nobody saw me do that. I was, what a stupid thing. Um, and then I'm like, well, what do I do? And I think if, if, if you or I had without any preparation, had just been grabbed off the street and thrown into that circumstance, you, you would have had pretty good uh, uh, justification to panic. But I'd been uh, plucked off the street decades before and trained, and, and I'd spent you know hundreds of hours in all sorts of simulators and underwater and practicing rescuing my crewmate if he was uh, you know struck blind or got the bends or his suit had a leak or something like that. So it was just like, oh, man, I wish this hadn't happened. I hope we can get all our work done out here because we don't have to do another whole spacewalk. And I really, it's not like I'm crazy brave or something. It's just I was like ready and prepared and, and trained so that it didn't overwhelm me. It was just a, a thing that happened that, that we fortunately in our toolbox had some tools to deal with. Well, how did, what, did you, what did you do? Did you leave where you were and go back inside the ship? That would have been plan B if I couldn't solve the problem where I was. Uh, I knew everything there is to know about the spacesuit, you know, because that's what's keeping you alive. It's really not even a spacesuit, Alan. It's, it's a one-person spaceship huh. is what it is. You know, it's a custom-fit spaceship because it, it has everything keeping you alive. It's got a lot of mechanical systems. So I'm going through in my own mind what could be causing this. 
And how am I going to fix it? And down in Houston, when I told them, when I rolled that grenade into mission control, you know, hey, I'm blind in both eyes. What do you want me to do? I can just imagine them all going, what did he say? What, what, what did he just say? <laughs> anyway, and the doctor and the, the spacesuit person and everybody. Um, but what, what we all decided to do was to pop open this little valve next to my neck which allowed my oxygen to squirt out into space, the, the stuff inside my suit to squirt out into space, which would then have new fresh oxygen out of the tank flow up behind my head and across my eyes, new clean, dry oxygen, so that it would obviously stop whatever the contamination was, but also evaporate my tears so that hopefully it would slowly um, dilute whatever it was and I could start to see again. And I was kind of unhappy there listening to as, as my oxygen is squirting out endlessly into the universe. But at the same time, it was solving the problem. And after, I forget, 15 or 20 minutes, I could see better. Not perfect, but sort of like if you got used to have soap in your eyes, mm. that type of seeing. And uh, and then as soon as I thought I could see just well enough, I closed that, that little valve again, the little purge valve, because I didn't want to waste my oxygen and then uh, they let me get back to work, and we actually got everything done. It was one of the longest spacewalks ever, about almost eight hours, uh, which is really physically hard. It's like being on a bench press machine for eight hours. But, um, but we got everything done. You know, the impression I get listening to you today and on your videos is that you're not one of those people that they describe who gets a thrill from looking for danger. I'm the opposite, Alan. I am, I am not an adrenaline junkie. I'm not a thrill seeker. You know, I'm not evil Knievel or something. You know, it's just, I would never do that sort of thing. Um, but I think exploring the rest of the universe is worth taking a risk for. I think trying to understand, you know, what our world is and how it fits in and why do we have a moon? And, and what is going on on the surface? And what's normal for planets? What's it like on Mars? What's it like on Venus? I think all of that is really important and therefore worth taking a risk for. But, uh, but then I, once I've decided, okay, I'm going to fly a rocket ship or I'm going to do a spacewalk, now that changes my whole job. My not, job is not, oh boy, I'm going to be uh, scared and excited. My job is I want to know everything there is to know about the risk. So when things go wrong, like they always do, I have a plan. I have some way to deal with it. I can still get this thing done. My job is not to take a thrill-seeking risk. My job is to understand the threat so well that I can have the greatest chance possible of, of succeeding and coming out the other side. And to me, that's the fun part, too. I cheated death because of my own, you know, wiles and cunning and Wait, wait and, a minute, you're, and you're, work. You're, you're edging into thrill-seeking territory. <laughs> yeah, but, but uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I am. But, <laughs> and, but and, I think and it's more clinical. I'm also wondering about feeling that you've prepared for the worst. And yet, when you talked about the odds of something catastrophic happening in the first space missions, and even by the time you got to your space mission, the odds were not so great that you wouldn't encounter a disaster. Well, we, when, you know, the first American flew in space, Al Shepard, uh, on the Cinco de Mayo of 1961, um, we had no idea what the odds were. You know, we, we just knew it was a huge risk. But uh, he was a test pilot, and, and test pilots take risks for a living, and that's what I did before I was an astronaut. But even 
Yeah, I, he flew in 61. My first flight was in 95, so decades later. Even then, uh, the 74th shuttle flight, now that we completed the shuttle program and we know how close we came so many times, and we know that we had two accidents with Challenger and then with Columbia, now you can actually figure it out. Okay, what, what actual risk were we taking that November day in 1995? Just during launch, just during the eight minutes and 40 seconds that take you from Florida to get you safely into orbit, eight minutes and 40 seconds, uh, the odds now were of dying, of killing the whole crew, were about one in 38. Hmm. One in 38. So, it w but, you know, everything worth doing in life has risk. And it just depends how you quantify your risk. Getting married, it's a huge risk. Or <laughs> learning to drive a car, riding a right. bike, or going to the dentist. Everything's got risk, right? And you have to decide, is the benefit worth the risk to me? And, 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 that, and to me, I, I'm pretty careful about what's on that list for myself. But the things that I do want to do, I, I try and uh, do them as well as I possibly can so that I come out whole on the other side. What do you think made you such a good communicator about all this? Because it would be so easy to experience it with even a touch of awe and not be able to describe it. I don't know. It's Part of it is just, I think life's more interesting when you share it with people. There are lots of astronauts who have tremendous technical skills, but, but they're, they don't see it as a big part of their job to somehow you know, emote that to other people so that other people share it. But I think I learned from the Apollo program because it was sort of the difference between the Soviets and, and the Americans at the time. The Soviets didn't tell anybody what they were doing until it was done and it was successful. And then they would give a sanitized version of what happened, you know, with, but the, the Apollo program, no matter what went wrong, and there was all sorts of stuff going wrong, and people, you know, swearing and farting on the radio and just stuff happening, you know. But, <laughs> but they, they thought at the time, rightly, I think, that this is too important to keep to ourselves. And, and some of the greatest benefit of this is going to happen if we allow people to come along for the ride and really see what's happening and, and see the human side of this. It isn't just clinical. It isn't just technical. This is a grand new human adventure as we start at the very beginning baby steps to explore the rest of the universe in person. And, and let's, let's invite as many people to be part of it as we can. And I think I just, I completely internalize that. Like, yeah, that's the way you ought to do this. Uh, and if, if, and when I was living on the space station on my third space flight for almost half a year, my, my little measure was, if I think this is kind of cool, like if something happens and I go, like there was one day I opened up a can of peanuts. They'd shipped up a little can of peanuts, planters. You can't say planters because, you know, it's NASA. But anyway, peanuts. And I opened it up, and I immediately, my immediate reaction when I opened this little, you know, that little flexible lid on peanuts was that, holy crap, it's full of maggots, flying maggots, because that's what it looked like. And I realized, no, that's just weightless peanuts that's what they look like <laughs> but it was so cool because they're all like buzzing and 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 that's so i went oh that's funny so, so i just took the little camera and turned the camera on and then opened the peanuts a few times and and millions of people have have watched that same little video because it's just interesting and delightful and different and i kind of use that as my measure the whole time if, if it was if it interested or delighted 
or surprised me, then why, why not try and share it and let other people see this new human experience? I know the, the videos of you showing us how you brush your teeth in space <laughs> yeah. and, and sleep in space and eat in space. Yeah, it's, Fascinating. It's, it's, it would, you, know, you wouldn't think it would be, but I, I've also spoken in, gosh, hundreds and hundreds of thousands maybe of schools and businesses and at the United Nations. And, and most people just, they, they want to know what it's like. It's so different. Um, they want to know what it's like to be a human being there. And so I did resolve to myself, if I ever get to stay there for a long period, I'm not, you know, I'm just going to look for, use whatever media is available. And it got better and better over my three space flights to just let people be part of it. And something like social media, Twitter, you could, you could just have a quick little transient funny or, or sad or informative thought with a picture. And just it, it takes 30 seconds and millions of people are suddenly there with you. It's a really wonderful way to, you know, to share a unique experience. When we come back from our break, Chris Hadfield tells me the behind-the-scenes story of his most famous sharing of a unique experience, his performance of David Bowie's song, Space Oddity. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with astronaut Chris Hadfield. I asked him how he got the guitar he used when he sang Space Oddity. There's been a guitar on board space stations since the 1970s. The, the Soviets had one, and then the Russians. When I went to the, help build their space station in the 90s on the Mir space station, they had a guitar up there. And then when I get up to the space station on my third flight, yeah, I, after I'd been there like a day, I'm going, hey, where's the guitar up here? And dug it out and, and then tried to figure out and learn how to play it. And, and sort, it's a little bit, Alan, if for the folks that play guitar, picture this. You, you go into your living room and you put your guitar somewhere near the wall and then stand on your head. Stand on your head next to the wall, you know, maybe leaning your feet on the wall and stand on your head for about three hours. 
until the blood is just pounding in your head and you're, you've got those big veins up the side of your neck and you, you know, you got that big one down your forehead and you're, you're congested and your tongue is feeling a little swollen. And then while you're upside down, pick the guitar up and play it while you're upside down without any strap or anything. That's what it felt like to play and sing up there. It's just so weird and different without gravity, with not pushing the fluid out of your head. It's hard to sing. It's hard to play. So yeah, it, it took me a while to, to sort of relearn a skill that I already had on earth. But it did hit a silver lining. Because my sinuses were always congested, because there's no gravity to pull it down, um, and and my it was a little easier to hit the high notes, I, I found, which for covering Bowie, you know, if you think about Space Oddity, um, it, it actually worked to my advantage a little bit to not have a deeper register. <laughs> you know, it might be fun for the people listening, if they're not among the hundreds of millions who have already heard it, to play a few bars of you singing in space. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, sure. This is ground control to Major Tom. But what amazes me is you not only did a, a wonderful job performing the song, you shot it yourself. You didn't have somebody else shooting you. What, did you Velcro the camera to different parts <laughs> of the spaceship? Yeah, one Saturday afternoon, because uh, um, we get a little bit of time off on the weekends. And I, I took like maybe an hour on a Saturday afternoon. We'd already, I'd done my audio tracks, and then some friends on Earth had put the instrumentals underneath. So we had the soundtrack. And now it was my job to try and get enough raw video that my son could put it into a, you know, YouTube. Sometimes I held the camera like a selfie style, or I, sometimes I mounted it to the guitar, or I just stuck it on the wall and then, you know, floated in. And then I thought it would be fun. I'll just float the guitar and let it tumble down one of the laboratory modules, and then I'll zip down there and grab it before it hits structure. And I just took all that video and, and all of those raw outtakes and sent it down to my son, Evan, uh, down in Canada, and he and a buddy of his put it together and and released it just before I came home. And yeah, it was a, a fun little father son project, but yeah, it, it went beyond viral. And, and but the best part, Alan, is that uh, David Bowie loved it, and he That's always great. wanted to fly in space. And he was very complimentary about it, and he was reaching the end of his life too. So really nice that that I had the privilege of putting a smile on his face at that stage of life. You've not only sung in space, which, by the way, I, I have a feeling has helped make you a, a good communicator. My belief is that people who are good at singing songs, especially songs with a story, you become accustomed to acting out 
the character who's singing the song. Yeah, I started singing stories, and I'm, I got one of those brains that remembers lyrics. So, you know, I know all the lyrics of American Pie and Piano Man, or, you know, the long song, but I know hundreds and hundreds of songs by heart. And the, the, the songs I like the best are the ones that have a melody that stays in your head when the song stops playing. And mm. when you get in and learn the lyrics, you feel something different or you learn something. And so those are the songs I naturally seek out. And so I've been in bands my whole adult life. I fronted bands for 30 years. And uh, I wrote and recorded a whole album up there in addition to Space Oddity. We called it um, Space Sessions, Songs from a Tin Can, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> That's great. Yeah, and, but, but I, I had sort of the same thought. Here I am off the earth, and I'm a songwriter. Um, and I'm not the best songwriter ever, but I'm not the worst songwriter ever. Let's just try and record this experience and let other people see it and hear it and feel it in a different way. Were the songs on that album all related to Space Journey, or were, were they songs about everyday life back on the planet? Um, one of them is is about taking a bus trip from uh, from Winnipeg out to the Rockies. Um, uh, and one of them is a lullaby to my daughter. Instead of just sitting from the distance of the foot of her bed uh, while she's you know going to sleep at night, instead I was looking across the gap from space as if I was at the foot of her bed and called Space Lullaby. Most of them are involving distance, and some of them are very specifically, you know, space-related. But, uh, you know, everywhere we've ever gone in history, we have written and created new art in that place, and it's influenced by where you are. And, and music evolves. Think how where bluegrass came from, or where jazz came from, you know, those are the, the the granddaughters of other types of music that that were evolved in a new 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 place. And I'm really curious when we start settling the moon over the next generation, what's what's moon music going to be? Because the people up there are going to have a different set of stimuli. They're going to have to find new things that rhyme with moon <laughs> and dust and dark and yeah, <laughs> yeah, and scared. <laughs> yeah, for, for the song to work with me. You mentioned your daughter. When you're in space, do you get a chance to communicate with individual people like your daughter? On my first space flight, we only had ham radio, and it was it was very primitive, you know, just a few minutes. But on my third space flight, yeah, we, we it's sort of like you and I talking right now, not as good. Um, so, yeah, I could talk to people, and I did. And then I would have a video conference with my wife uh, once a week uh, for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, it was, it was, a, it was like... A very long, very distant, very magnificent business trip that I was on. And so I stayed in touch with my family that way. How much time do you have to do things like that that are personal and important to you? Because you have a lot of work to do. Just, yeah. just, just getting your teeth brushed. <laughs> <laughs> well, nowhere on the, on the schedule does it say, you know, uh, take some time and talk to your family or take pictures or, or play music or anything. So I would... Uh, do all, it's about 16 hours a day of work, but there were seven or eight hours a day scheduled on your, and you were scheduled every five minutes. The, the little red line moving across your computer screen, it told you what you were doing every five minutes for the whole six months. Um, but when it got to the line that said sleep, then I would steal a couple hours because I figured, ah, I don't want to come home 
you know, unaccomplished and well rested. I want to come home having really shot my bolt up here. So, so I would use that time to write music and take pictures and make videos and, and, you know, try and squeeze the most out of the experience. You didn't even have an hour a day or half hour a day to yourself, except what, on Saturday you had a day? Uh, on the weekends, they would try and give us a little free time, but no, the rest of it. But if you think about it, you know, as you say, a little meteorite can punch a hole in the side any moment, and the, your crew is the only thing that's going to save it. And there's many equivalent sort of emergencies that can happen. So you're constantly studying and training for those. And then you're running 200 experiments on board. And so you have to prepare every day to do all the stuff right the next day. Uh, and then stuff breaks all the time. It's a big, complicated ship, and you're the superintendent. So you got to run around and fix everything. And, you know, the toilet breaks or... And then, like, you got to talk to the queen because the queen wants to talk to you. And so, you know, so there's a bunch of overhead there. <laughs> right, right when you're fixing the toilet. That's too- <laughs> what made you want to be an astronaut? Uh, it thrills me right down to my core. And, and I think that's what you should try and use in your own life to shape with the direction that you go. You know, what... What actually excites you? you know, when you, what movies do you go see? Or if you go to the bookstore, what parts of the bookstore do you go to? You know, what, what's in your heart as the cool, exciting, fun, interesting things in life? And, and not just the transient stuff, but fundamental things, you know? And, and when I was a kid, I, I loved Star Trek and, you know, the 2001 A Space Odyssey. I loved reading science fiction. I loved all of that. And people were really flying in space. So to me, it was just this, what a lucky person am I that I'm now living in a time where things that used to be just science fantasy are now really available, maybe. And all I need to do is, you know, get ready and and see if, and maybe get picked and go do these things. So I still just can't believe that I've had a chance to do those things in my life. And you know, I, I've had a, such a richness and depth of spaceflight experience, and I've put a lot of my life into making it successful, but I still pinch myself daily at what a lucky guy I am to have done any of it. And you have a new novel out, The Apollo Murders. Yeah, it is uh, an international bestseller. It's in 14 languages. Wow. That's amazing to me, you know. Is the great success of the book comparable to Walking in Space? No, no, it's not even close. But it, it, but it is a, a huge delight. And, and it's another way to, to tell the story, you know, where you can get into everybody's yeah. gut reaction and how would this personality react? How would this person, what, would, what was Nixon thinking at the time? What was Brezhnev saying? You know, what was Andropov doing as the head of the KGB? And, and how would all those people react? And all the little people, and I, there's an awful lot of Easter eggs in the book of real people that, that, are, that are in the book. And, and most of it is real things that happen. So, so I've, I've just woven this twisted, very action-filled plot in amongst the stuff that really happened at that time in the 70s, in 73. So yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm really pleased that the book's doing so well. That's wonderful. I can't wait to find, to find out what new skill you develop in the next <laughs> couple of years. It's amazing. I, I wish we had more time to talk, but our time is running out. And before we end every show, we, we, we end with seven quick questions. 
Okay. They're roughly to do with communication. I'm ready. Okay. Okay. First question. What do you wish you really understood? It's a huge question for me because I hardly understand anything, but to try and prioritize it, I guess I wish I really understood um, you know, how this all came to be. Yeah. That, 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 and that, that a lot of everything I've done in my life is to try and answer that question. How did this all get to be the way it is here right now? Great. Number two, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I, I try, if possible, uh, to replace the legend that is in their head. Like, because <laughs> they think their facts are right. And so if I think my facts are, are correct, then I, I try and tell them in a way that can replace their conviction with a new conviction that is based in reality. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> uh, gosh, uh, I, I'm... You know, being an astronaut, you get asked a lot of strange questions. Um, I got asked, uh, did I see the big alien structures on the dark side of the moon? <laughs> and, and, you know, where do you even start with that question? <laughs> you know? yeah. Did I see? If you say no, then you're acknowledging then, they're there. And, yeah, and, right. <laughs> anyway, uh, there aren't big alien structures on the other side of the moon. But, but yeah, you know, it's just kind of a very revealing question of the person who asked it. Well, you could probably cover it without insulting them by saying, well, it's too dark there, you know. <laughs> yeah, or <laughs> our spaceship didn't go that far, but yeah. yeah. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh, everyone has things that make them happy. And if you're a compulsive talker, it probably makes you happy to be talking all the time. So I, I, I just go somewhere else. You know, I, I just stop that person for me. Yeah, I, and Alan, I've got a pretty good trump card, you know, like I'm, I'm, I've flown spaceships and commanded a spaceship. So in conversation, I'm normally the only person in the room who, who's got that to talk about. And so so if I really want to be a jerk, you know, I could do that to stop a compulsive talker, but I don't want to be a jerk. So it, it normally the more you talk, the less you have to say. So just let that person keep talking. They'll lose their audience. Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table and you're sitting next to someone you don't know, how do you start a genuine conversation? Yeah, as soon as we start talking about flying spaceships, it normally derails all other normal conversation. So I do my best to try and find out you know, where that person has been, what is important to them, what things have they done that I don't know anything about, what can I learn from that person? You know, To me, getting the person next to me to, to passionately start teaching me about things that they love, that, that's the best conversation I could have. What gives you confidence? Skill. Huh. Skill gives me confidence. Yeah. And, and a lot of people don't want to put in the effort to gain the skill. And so then they want the confidence to come through some other way, which is normally very unnerving. But the ultimate antidote for fear is, is competence. And, and so and if you want to be confident about something, then, you know, do the necessary work. And then, you know, then if you're struck blind during your spacewalk, it's not a big deal. <laughs> Last question. What book changed your life? Uh, several have, but Mysterious Island by Jules Verne um, was really important to me when I was young because it, it was a wonderful 
sort of triumph of human ingenuity and resilience and capability and teamwork in order to thrive under a very difficult set of circumstances. And I just thought that was a great story. But I think the one book maybe that was most important is by uh, Mike Collins, who just passed away last year. But Mike was orbiting the moon while Neil and Buzz were down on the surface in uh, July of 69. And Mike wrote a book called Carrying the Fire, which is a great title. Um, and it was really just about uh, his experience and what it had been like and what he valued and, and you know, how this had affected him. And, and very pragmatic, but beautifully elegant. He's an elegant writer. And to me, it was, it was like a ticket in to something that I, I had no idea what it would be like. It, it, was, it was like a very clearly laid out um, invitation to this type of life that, that he had, he sure wasn't going to be an astronaut when he was a kid, but he'd found a way to do these amazing things. And, and it was both insightful for me, but it almost like, uh, like, like winning the golden ticket, like, oh, this is possible. This is how you do these things. This is the type of person you need to be. And so I found it, I'm really glad that he took the time to write that book because I found it not just inspirational, but, but so invitational. Well, I sure am glad you took the time to talk with me today. I'd, I, I feel I've gotten to know you, and I, I think everybody listening has gotten to know you in a way we might not have expected earlier, because you're such a good communicator, <laughs> because you're really you, and you let that you out, and it's just great to, to, to meet you. Uh, it, it's a huge delight for me, Alan, and um, you, you don't need any more compliments in your life, but you sure deserve them. Um, but uh, w when you're speaking to someone who who is really skilled at communicating, you learn stuff about yourself, and you get down into little introspective thoughts that you never had before, and uh, and that's how this conversation has felt to me. So, oh, so nice. thank you I'm for the, having that. the skills that you have, and and for taking the time <laughs> to chat today. Thanks so much, Chris. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Chris Hadfield began his career as a fighter pilot in the Canadian Air Force, later becoming a test pilot at Edwards Air Force Base in California. He was selected to become one of four Canadian astronauts from a field of over 5,000 in 1992. His third and last mission to space aboard the International Space Station lasted six months, from December 2012 to May 2013. Chris hosted a web series on space exploration on the video platform Masterclass, and he wrote a best-selling autobiography, An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth. His novel, The Apollo Murders, follows a fictional Apollo 18 mission during the space race in the Cold War of the early 1970s. His website is chrishadfield.ca. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. 
The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the poet Billy Collins. Not only do we get to hear him read some of his wonderful poems, but we also get to learn how they somehow take unexpected turns that not only delight and surprise us, but come as a surprise even to him. I feel the poem having a a certain willfulness or a certain... uh, The poem might take on a kind of whimsicality about where it's going. So the poem might want to go in a direction that you hadn't anticipated. And that really is the the beginning of the real fun of poetry, is when the poem is shifting and a little out of your control. And it has a a way of... uh, it has an, it develops an interest in itself that you're not even aware of. Uh, it develops an intelligence um, along the way. Sometimes, if you're lucky. If it if not, it just ends up in the wastebasket. Billy Collins, whose words are always happy to be in each other's company. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalder.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated.